found one of the best lessons I ever learned. I was I was a junior doctor at the time and I was working with this person who was very charismatic, a little bit eccentric, but very charismatic. And one of the things he used to say is he used to say, I don't know is the second best answer. And I remember him saying that to us 25 years ago. And it is so true because it was also this creed that doctors were supposed to know everything, have all the answers. And if you know, fantastic. But if you don't know, just say you don't know. And, and let's let's try and find out. And I must say that was one of the greatest lessons I ever learned. And I, and, and I, I learned it early, which was great because I've never been afraid to say, I actually don't know, but let's try and find out what's going on here. And it's been liberating, actually. I'm Dr. Mark Rowe and welcome to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. As a family physician, my expertise is supporting people in the areas of positive health and lifestyle medicine. Join me in conversations that share life lessons, health habits, and leadership practices, focusing on positive psychology, lifestyle medicine, and ways that enable you to live with more vitality on purpose. Appreciating that when it comes to your vitality, that everything is so interconnected. Episodes will air weekly, and you can find me wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, on my website, drmarkrow.com. I'm delighted to be joined today in the doctor's chair by Dr. Barbara Ryan. Barbara specializes in gut health as clinical professor in Trinity College, Dublin, and as a consultant gastroenterologist. Her mission, along with colleague, clinical dietitian Elaine McGowan, is to digest the science of gut health so that women and men can get all they need to know for a healthier, happier gut. The gut experts want to cut through the noise, share expert science-based information and reduce the stigma that surrounds so many gut problems using the three E's of education, empowerment and eating healthily. For more detailed information, visit our additional show notes of this episode or visit thegutexperts.com. If you're a leader who recognizes, particularly since COVID-19, that living with vitality and building a more resilient mind matter now more than ever for you and your team, then this podcast is for you. For further details, visit drmarkrow.com. Imagine how surprising it would be if there was another condition a bit like irritable bowel syndrome, only more common that almost no one has heard of. Well, there is, and it's called functional dyspepsia. That's a quote by my guest on the doctor's chair today, Professor Barbara Ryan. Barbara, it's great to have you here. Thank you very much for inviting me to to join you, Mark. Thank you. Tell us about functional dyspepsia. Yeah, so functional dyspepsia, it's a little bit like the, the, the poor relation of irritable bowel syndrome. Everybody's heard of irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and functional dyspepsia is essentially... It's like the upper digestive system uh, version of IBS. So IBS affects your bowel, gives you bowel symptoms, affects going to the bathroom, etc. So functional dyspepsia affects more your stomach and the upper half of your digestive system and causes symptoms like nausea, bloating, fullness after eating, pain in the, the upper part of your tummy, etc. And it affects um, almost uh, one in 10 people. So it's 
it's really common. And a, a recent worldwide study done by the World um, Society of Gastroenterology at the World Health Organization showed that this was, you know, it, it's it's more common than IBS. So, and in some countries, it's as common as one in five people is affected by this. So, yeah, so it's very common and very poorly known about. So, um, one one of one of the the reasons myself and my colleagues at the Gut Experts was to was to talk about this condition and which affects a lot of people and to increase awareness. Why do you think, Barbara, that uh, functional dyspepsia is so common, you know, affecting one in five to one in 10 people? Functional dyspepsia and irritable bowel syndrome, they're both what are called functional disorders. So they're conditions that affect the functioning of your digestive system rather than the structure of it. So when we do tests, everything looks normal. And these conditions are now known to be disorders of what's called the gut brain, of disorders of gut brain interaction. So you've all you've probably heard about everybody's heard about the gut brain axis now. Oh, absolutely. The, the important and really vital connection between the brain and the gut and the gut and the brain. So that can that's that gut brain axis can can go out of kilter very easily through stress, changes in diet, changes in lifestyle, etc. And those changes and disruption in the gut brain axis give rise to and contribute to the development of conditions like IBS and functional dyspepsia. And, you know, people are under a lot of stress nowadays. Um, mm. We don't always eat and drink what we should. And, and these things can then cause problems like or contribute to IBS and, and, and this condition called functional dyspepsia. I've been reading a lot about the microbiome. It's absolutely fascinating how there's, you know, 50 to 100 trillion bugs in our bodies and and that these bugs produce all these neurotransmitters and neurochemicals that impact how we think, feel, act, and behave. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we and we are only learning. I mean, we're 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 still in the dark about a lot of of what goes on in our gut. Um, and as you say, there are these trillion, fifty trillion plus bacteria in the colon, um, and we don't we don't even we don't know have names for for a large um, percentage of the bacteria that are there. But we do know, and what we're learning is that these bacteria have a hugely influential role on every part of our body. And, and in fact, people are now calling it the gut brain microbiota axis in, in recognizing the effect that these uh, bacteria have on also the gut brain axis. And as you say, they produce serotonin. 70% of serotonin in our body in our body is produced in the gut. Serotonin is very important in managing mood, anxiety, etc. Um, dopamine also is produced by gut bacteria. Um, and as you say, cortisol, estrogen, lots of other hormones as well are all contributed to by these bacteria. And they have a huge role um, on every aspect in our, uh, of our bodily function, actually. Um, I actually love this one name I, I, I read recently. It's called the Mysterium. A name because you know a lot of what's going on there is still a mystery to us, and we're only learning. And I, I, I think that really captures the fact that, that this really is an evolving science. It really is. I love that word, the mysterium. That's a new one for me. Mm, yeah. And I suppose it really shows that, as advanced as science is, there is still so much that we don't know. And I suppose I wanted to ask you, Barbara, about you know the role of influencers and non-experts, because it seems like everybody nowadays is is an expert when it comes to nutrition and when it comes to what we should be eating, what we shouldn't be eating. And as, as a gastroenterologist, as somebody who is really, I suppose, giving your life to the gut and the gut and health and, and disease. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think 
actually that's myself and my colleague Elaine McGowan, who's a dietitian. As you mentioned earlier, that we 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 set up this, uh, we started to work together as the gut experts, and one of our main driving forces for doing that was that we were concerned by a lot of the maybe poor quality information and misinformation that is out there. And as you say, everybody has an opinion, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that opinion is based on sound evidence and, and, and science. So we're trying to trying to um, to counter some of that. And, and we kind of, as a, as a sort of a, we were trying to think of, well, what is our raison d'etre as the gut experts? And we kind of came up with, with, with three reasons. And one is that we want to educate people. I mean, I think there's so much information out there, but we want to add our experience, but also evidence-based information to have a reliable source that people can read about, particularly functional gut conditions like IBS and functional dyspepsia. And by giving people, you know, proper evidence-based information, we want to empower people um, to to make hopefully good decisions regarding their own health. And then the third thing we wanted to do was to encourage eating for health and well-being. We call these our three E's. Because I am really concerned, as is Elaine, by a lot of the you know poor nutritional information that people are getting from the internet and from influencers. And I I listened to your um, recent podcast, Mark, on on the Mediterranean diet and the many many wonderful benefits of the Mediterranean diet. And that very much is our creed. Also, we think that the Mediterranean boxes or the Mediterranean diet takes all the boxes for gut health as well as um as well as overall health and i think we've been concerned about people maybe encouraging people to have very exclusionary diets be it excluding all animal-based proteins and vegan diets which wouldn't be my creed for gut health and people giving up being encouraged to give up dairy eggs fish gluten um and and I don't think that that is necessarily the best way forward for most people. So we're trying to give people a um, a, a reliable source of, of evidence-based information. Mm, I think that's terrific. I mean, I love the three E's to educate, to empower and to eat for health. And yeah, you're right. I mean, I think the Mediterranean diet, what I love about it is it's there's very little off the table. Almost everything is there. Yeah. And it's about variety and it's really it's eating for nutrition and vitality as opposed to just eating for calories. I agree with you completely. And I think that, you know, I, I, some of the very healthy eating, I mean, people will say, oh, you know, you may have heard this American Gut Project that showed that um, people who eat more than 30 different plant based foods in a, in a given week were found to have the greatest amount of diversity of the gut bacteria and diversity of your gut bacteria is a really good thing and um, the more the merrier um, but that doesn't mean that if you have a Mediterranean diet you can't do that you can't you don't have to be exclusively plant-based to enjoy the benefits of plant-based foods and I think as you say in the Mediterranean does that you you get all the different types of foods um, huge variety, unprocessed. I mean, it's and it's really good for your gut. Oh no, absolutely. And and at the same time, I can really empathize with people. It's so confusing the information that's out there. You know, I remember years ago, um, you know, going into a supermarket, and at the time, I believed that low-fat yogurts were better for you than full-fat yogurts. You know, because low low-fat, whereas actually the low-fat was much higher in sugar. And there's so much confusion around ingredients and what's good and what's bad. And people get just, I think, blindsided by the fog of too much choice. And absolutely. And I, I think in general, 
diets of exclusion. So excluding things. Okay, obviously there will be a minority of people who might have a food allergy and who sure. absolutely have to exclude something. But for most people, it's a question of how much you eat of something mm. as opposed to all or nothing. And that's mm. why we would really also... And this is very important, say, for example, the people with irritable bowel syndrome, many people with IBS will say, oh, I can't eat. I can't eat wheat. I get very bloated. I, I'm going to go on a gluten free diet. And in fact, it's not the gluten in the wheat that's causing them problem by and large, unless they're celiac. It's things called fructans, which are the fiber in, in wheat that cause people to, be, to become bloated sometimes after they eat wheat. And that's a question of how much of it you eat as opposed to an all or nothing. So you mm. might be able to you know, eat two slices of bread over the course of the day very comfortably. But yes, you might feel bloated and uncomfortable after a very large bowl of pasta. So it's just a question of looking at the amount. So that's very much myself and Elaine's creed. It's the same thing with, with dairy. Most people, if they feel get, they get some bloating or discomfort after lactose, it's a question of how much rather than giving mm. it up altogether. And, and obviously dairy is an incredibly important source of calcium. So mm. we're trying to get people to include things in their diet as opposed to exclude them. Absolutely. I think that all makes sense. Can I ask you, Barbara, what your views are on time restricted eating in terms of, you know, the lot of work in the Salk Institute looking at eating within maybe a 10 or a 12 hour window each day and then giving yourself a chance to recharge and recover and rest. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of these different ones that I think there's like, that's the one you're kind of describing is probably the 16, eight to 16 hour fast and eating within a two hour, within an eight hour period. Certainly the, the results in terms of weight loss are, they do seem to be um, as effective as, as, as restricting calories. Long-term, they seem to be a little bit more effective possibly after a year in the studies. I think some of those time-restricted eating patterns make sense physiologically. I mean, we evolved, we did not evolve to be continuously grazing. Um, and I think um, it's been shown to be very good for the, these long fasts have been very good, shown to be good for the gut microbiome. So I think, I think we probably are not eating the way we evolved to eat. And I think some, I, I don't think it has to be as excessive as a 16 hour fast and an eight hour eating window, but I think eating regularly with having periods of fasting in between um, are, uh, I think that is physiologically good for us. And actually the, I, I just, on our Instagram, I just did a, a little thing on borborygmi, which are um, gut rumbles um, and the sort of the, the, the gurgling sounds you hear in your tummy. And I think, one very interesting thing is that, that the tummy rumble you get when you fasted for a period of time, that's a thing called the migrating motor complex or the MMC. And another name for it is called a housekeeping wave because it does this really important job that it gives this really big contraction all the way down your gut and it clears out dead bacteria, undigested food, et cetera. Yeah, and that only actually kicks in when you've been fasting for a few hours. So people who kind of graze continuously and never get that tummy rumble, they're not getting the benefit of that cleanse, that the sort of cleansing peristaltic wave. So how interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's, I love the name. It's a housekeeping wave, giving your bowel a good sweep. So experiencing that is, is a good sign that you're, yeah. that you're looking after the bugs in your gut. Absolutely. I mean, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think so time-restricted eating has its benefits, but maybe the extremes are not not necessarily so good. Well, I'm like you. I like moderation and I don't like extremes, but I do I do think eating within a 12-hour window each day uh, is, is a good idea. And I think not eating late at night, I think is particularly good mm. and uh, not going to bed on a full tummy. But there was a really interesting study in Kings a few years ago, and they looked at people who um, ate, uh, you know, later in the evening. 
And on average, the people who ate later in the evening, I think, had an average about an extra 350 calories intake in the day, just compared to those who, who stopped eating at eight, eight o'clock at night. Um, and that adds up a lot of extra. And I know it's nutrition is not as simply as simple as calories in and calories out, but that is a lot of extra intake mm. over the course of a year. That's it several slices is. of bread in a day. It certainly isn't. Do you think that maybe is because willpower is depleted later at night as well? And you're more inclined to head for the cookies and the cupboard. Yeah, And if you're people, you know, watching TV and mm. have a bicky or, you know, we're not eating out of hunger necessarily that time of the mm. night. We're sort of eating just out of habit or, yeah, comfort or boredom, maybe, you know. So mm. I, th- I think I think, as you say, those, those things you, you said are very, very sensible. I think mindfulness is so important as well. I think mindful eating, paying attention to what you're eating, when you're eating it, where you're eating it, as opposed to, as you said, just eating on the couch while you're watching uh, Grey's Anatomy or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Barbara, can I just ask you more generally? So that's fascinating uh, about the gut experts. And obviously people can check that out online, thegutexperts.com. Yes. Yeah. We'd we'd love if people had a look at our resource. We, We think we've a lot of really helpful information there. Well, I think the more we can do to bridge the gap uh, between, you know, knowledge and an action is good. And I'm a great believer in education like you. And I think if people are more educated and more empowered, they can make better choices and decisions for, for their long term health. For you, Barbara, you know, working as a doctor all these years, uh, you know, the highs and the lows. How has it been for you? I, I don't know, but Mark, we're we're similar vintage. So we've been we've been doing this job for for quite some time now. I've just oh, over twenty five years, and and by and large, I think it's a it's actually a huge privilege to be a doctor. And I know that sounds terribly, you know, sappy or something, but it really is. I mean, and it's just it, it's it's just such a privileged job to to get to help people. The things that people tell you, the things they confide in you. Um, you know, you see people at their lowest ebb and, and and then you see them bouncing back, which is incredibly rewarding. So I think, you know, I think by and large, I would encourage any person to do medicine if they have the opportunity. Um, it really is a very re- rewarding job. And I think it's a it's a very rare day that you don't go home feeling, you know, you've achieved something or done some good. Um, I, I think it's a really, really wonderful career, actually. Mm, well, I agree. I mean. You know, they say you you make a living with what you get and you make a life by what you give to others. And I mm. really think, you know, having a sense of purpose in terms of service and contribution, medicine can be so rewarding. It can be. I mean, there obviously are challenges as well. And I think when things go wrong, when a patient suffers a complication or when a patient is given, you know, giving somebody a very bad diagnosis, they're all really, you know, really challenging things and you you take them home with you and I, I think it's I don't think it's the sort of job you sort of leave at the the door of your office or the door at the hospital of the hospital I I think it comes home with you and I think trying to to learn to 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 manage that is uh is probably one of the great challenges of of medicine and how do you manage with that Barbara how do you cope and deal with stress I'm not necessarily saying I'm always the best person at dealing with it, but how I try to deal with it is um, I love to exercise that, that I really find I, I, uh, um, you know, I de-stress through that. I love to play golf. Um, and when I play well, that's very, that's very uh, good for me. Maybe perhaps not quite, quite so good if I don't have a good round, but um, fresh air, exercise and um, time with family, um, reading, 
anything I think that uh, whatever it is that 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 helps you um, relax connect with nature I think is phenomenal I live beside the sea I think you from your photos Mark I think you live beside the sea as well and I just find this the smell of the sea the sound of the sea that that you know it, it really lifts me up again so really nature I think is probably one of the the most important things for me well I couldn't agree more I think spending time in nature is so so therapeutic it's mm. a great way to recharge recharge from stress and yeah. uh, to really feel Absolutely. I mean, and it's been shown to be beneficial in so many medical conditions. I mean, lots of studies have been done and it's been shown to be very beneficial for patients who suffer with IBS. Time in nature, 15 minutes a day was found to to help significantly help their IBS symptoms. So and I think those studies have been replicated in lots of different conditions. So and I know that's very much your creed and I, I couldn't agree with you more. And of course, exercise, the greatest pill of all. And you're being very modest because a little birdie has told me you're an excellent golfer. Oh, uh, intermittently. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I must say I love it. I've been playing since I was a child and it's really, it's really one of them. Were you an international play- golfer when you were younger? I was a junior international, yes. So yeah. you're, you're an excellent golfer. Well, well done. Can I ask you, Barbara, you know, burnout, I mean, Burnout is so epidemic nowadays. Have you have you seen it in colleagues? What do you think of burnout? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's certainly there have been a lot of you know studies done on it in in Ireland and, and internationally on burnout and amongst doctors. And I I think it's not like burnout like a like an like a, a firework. I don't think it's that. I don't think it's something for most people. It's not something that happens all in one go. I think it can be more insidious and. I think uh, I think it's I think there's a greater awareness now and the signs to look out for. And, you know, I, and I think there's much more support for people as well. And I think it's great to talk about things because I think I think people in every walk of life can can experience a degree of burnout. And certainly the covid pandemic for healthcare workers on the front line like yourself in, 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 in GP practice and in hospitals, doctors and nurses, I think it has been very, very challenging. And I think if you have your support mechanisms in place, and I think that that's very important, I think it's it's really wonderful to have some colleagues that you can talk to and share experiences with. I find that particularly helpful. Um, I think if you've got some support at home as well, that's really great. Um, and, and also just not to be too hard on yourself. I mean, to realize that it's very common and... Um, and it's not a failure. It doesn't mean you're not good at what you do. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. You just have to sit back and say, okay, this is, these are challenges. And, you know, how, how can I, how can I keep going with this and how can I get the help I need? But I think, I think it's great that there's a greater awareness about it now. Um, um, and that, that in itself is helpful to realize that if you're having, you know, if you're finding it all a bit overwhelming, that you're not alone in that. I think you're right. I think caring is wearing, I think probably over 50% of physicians and healthcare professionals experience burnout at some stage. But as you said, it's not an endpoint in itself. It can become a great learning tool for burnout recovery and learning to do things a little bit differently. Yeah, I think so too. And as you said, not to be too hard on yourself. I mean, something I speak about a lot is this idea of self-compassion to, you know, give yourself a break and treat yourself with the same kindness and empathy and support that you'd give a good friend. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really, really great advice, Mark, I think. And 
and you know, I would find that that the hardest thing really is is when 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 patients are struggling. I find that I I would I don't know about you, but I would find that I would take that home as well. And um, yeah, it's great to have 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 people to talk to about that and to share you know to share your concerns and your worries. I don't have an answer to it, um, and I think it's it, I think it's going to be a challenge for everybody in who who works in a in a job that is demanding. Um, and we just have to, as you say, be try and be kind to ourselves and realize that it's a normal experience. Absolutely. I think being kind to yourself and to others is, is a great way to be. And inevitably, when you when you know people a long time and you share their struggles and you share their illness journey with them, inevitably, it's impossible not to take that on board. Mm. And so it's really important to be able to offload, to mm. have your positive lifestyle habits as you said your exercise your time in nature mm. reading uh de-stressing recharging switching off yeah it's really really important and to understand you're a, a human being as well and you are deserving of the same care and compassion and kindness that you give to others as a doctor you're absolutely right i mean i think i think doctors are very you know we they know everybody says we're, we make very bad patients sometimes and think that's because we don't allow ourselves also you know we don't allow ourselves to be patient we feel we should be in this role of being in control and and knowing all the answers and you know helping people and yet maybe aren't always so good at, at accepting help ourselves and I think and I think what you're doing with your vitality medicine and you know I, I think those sort of things are we can all learn from that hugely thanks a million mm. well as I say every day is a learning day you have to keep on learning and you know, it's interesting, though, when you talk about medical school, I mean, the kind of the hidden curriculum of medical school is very much, you know, that doctors don't get sick, doctors don't get old, doctors don't get tired, you know, that in some way, they're supposed to be different from the patients they're looking after. Mm. And that whole sort of culture of self-denial and self-sacrifice is very much in the mix there. So it is actually. And, and also, I found one of the best lessons I ever learned. I was I was a junior doctor at the time and I was working with this person who was very charismatic, a little bit eccentric, but very charismatic. And one of the things he used to say is he used to say, I don't know is the second best answer. And I remember him saying that to us 25 years ago. And it is so true because it was also this creed that doctors were supposed to know everything, have all the answers. And if you know, fantastic. But if you don't know, just say you don't know. And, and let's let's try and find out. And I must say that was one of the greatest lessons I ever learned. And I, and, and I, I learned it early, which was great because I've never been afraid to say, I actually don't know, but let's try and find out what's going on here. And it's been liberating, actually. Yeah. And I think I think that the longer you go on in practice as well, you realize that life brings so much uncertainty mm. and it's not as easy to be as absolutely black or white about some things, you know, that the things are uncertain and things are emergent and evolving yeah i mean it's a different type of 50 shades of gray but there are and in medicine there are 50 shades of gray and you know and there's all very often more than one way to approach things um so um yeah i think absolutes absolutes in any walk of life are, are rarely the the, the the right answer i think and i think involving patients in decision making and you know coming to a consensus i think that's a great way forward as well do you agree Absolutely. And I think I think one of the wonderful things is that by and large, patients are, are are very well informed nowadays and they have, you know, there's a lot of information at their fingertips. And and one of our, you know, we'd like to help make sure that people try and have access to to good quality information. But people are very interested in being involved in their own care. And I think that's a huge step forward. 
um, that and 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 you're right. It 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 has to be a dialogue between the doctor mm. and patient to work out what's best for them. You know, I've had patients with say conditions like inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's or colitis, and these typically affect you know, young. You know, very often are diagnosed in people of young age. And when you're in niche patients, it's not just a question of what's the right medication or does is a surgery needed. You're also trying to think, well, you know, what exams have you coming up? How can we time this? Those so that you're you're not going something critical is not going to you know happen to you at the time of your exam. We won't make any changes to your medication, and you know, and people are very cognizant of how to fit managing their condition into their you know their life as a whole and and i think that's very important to for for doctors and patients to work together absolutely barbara if i was to say to you looking back now through the telescope of the past at your 22 year old self what what words of wisdom would you give her i would say um pace yourself that medicine is a marathon and not a sprint and you know you because i think we do we're generally hard workers um, and I think you've, you know, you've a lot, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to do and many, many years to do it. Um, and I, got, I think you've got to keep some strength so that you're still going to have the energy and the enthusiasm to keep, to keep working and learning new things um, at, uh, you know, for the rest of your entire career. I think early on, I probably would have gone at things with great intensity. Now, some people might say I still do, but I think I've learned to pace myself a lot better um and and you know and i think that's that would probably be one thing i would say i like that idea progress not perfection yeah absolutely and don't be too hard on yourself i think that if my 22 year old could hear self could hear that as well that would that, that would might have might have uh, um served me in good stead as well i mean i can remember one one night i was on call in one of the the dublin teaching hospitals i'd say i was about 24 and I was the, you know, I was this, the registrar on call. I was quite young qualifying and I was registrar on call in this big hospital. And um, it was a very busy night and so many patients were getting sick and the emergency department was crazy. And um, I remember having to take a few moments to my lock myself away in the bathroom for a few moments to take a few few moments to myself to take some deep breaths and say okay look you can do this just look at each thing at a time but I, I remember finding a little bit of, a little bit overwhelming at the time and you know young doctors are given a huge amount of responsibility in 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 hospitals at night when some of them were you know senior colleagues are at home um and uh remember I think if I, I would have told myself at that point that it was it would have also it's it's okay to call your seniors and and ask for advice and ask you don't have to try and deal with everything by yourself and I think fortunately that culture has has also changed I think I think you know when we're on call we would have a lot of calls at night and we're very much involved and I I hope that that's supportive to to our you know our junior colleagues. Were you mentored as a young doctor yourself? Yes, I I, I was I I was I mean I think it wasn't called mentorship back then. It was maybe called having a a role model or somebody you looked up to or somebody who took an interest in your career. But yes, I had some um some really really good mentors. But um when I was younger and. Um, our professor of medicine at the time in Trinity was a gastroenterologist and he was a, such a lovely man and he certainly was instrumental in getting some people to follow gastroenterology as a career because he made the he made the digestive system believe it or not sound very exciting um, and all the different uh, the different organs so yeah I, I did have some really really lovely mentors um, and very supportive yeah and I, I must say even though I was start training 25 years ago 
I never felt or was aware or appreciated in any way that there was a glass ceiling in medicine for women at that time. I, even though all my mentors would have been men because of that was the way the career possibly in hospital medicine was at the time. I, I never felt it was an issue. Maybe I was just, I didn't see it, but I, I think that also has really changed. And I, and I think there's so many opportunities for mm. both, both women and men, completely equal opportunities in medicine. And again, that's another reason why it is a great, uh, a great career. And do you get to mentor young young students now yourself, Barbara? I do. We get to. I get to mentor. We I, I, the hospital I'm attached to is it has students, medical students from Trinity College, um, and we would certainly be very involved with them. But and I also get to to mentor you know young doctors, so people training in either medicine or gastroenterology, and I think that's a really huge part of what we do as doctors as well. It also keeps you keeps you on your toes and keeps you fresh and keeps you up to date with what's you know the research in different areas um and i think it's really very rewarding and i i remember reading an article some years ago by a doctor and was in one of our medical papers and it was saying who's going to be standing at the end of your bed when you're older um you know your hospital bed and i I think that's such an important thing we constantly need to have, you know, good young doctors coming through who are going to continue to look after patients and us in our old age. But um, I remember just really thinking that's a great way of putting it. Who's going to look after you when you get older? Well, then if you want somebody, somebody good, then you need to make sure that you're contributing to their training and education. Barbara, you strike me as being a very resilient person. You know, can you give our listeners three take-homes for a resilient mind sure um yeah i i i I think i'm reasonably resilient um i think if you to be resilient you have to keep yourself healthy you need to have a healthy body and help to have a healthy mind and to do that i think you need to eat healthily um and to do that i would be a major proponent of the mediterranean diet um and also the smile study you may have think i'm not sure if you mentioned that before it showed looked at, at anxiety and depression and people with the who followed a mediterranean diet and it, and it was you know very beneficial in that regard so eating healthily for a healthy for a healthy mind i think one of your the things you talk about mark is self compassion and I think you do have to give yourself a break. I mean, if you're very hard on yourself, then it's going to be very, be very, very difficult to be resilient if you're if you've got your own critic there in your head all the time. So, I think I think a bit of self compassion is is very good um, and and very healthy. And also, I think allow yourself to learn from your mistakes. I mean, we are humans; we won't get things right all the time. And I think to to use um, to use you know things that haven't gone right as, as learning exercises as rather than flagellating yourself. Um, I think that's also really important because you are going to have to pick yourself up and try and move on to the next day. Um, so they would be my, my three, three things that I would say. So really self-care, self-compassion and, and self-development. Never stop learning. Finally, Barbara, can I ask you for you, what's the meaning of life? Um, this is a really difficult question, Mark. Um, I think, I don't think there as such is a meaning of life. I feel that you can have meaning in your life. Um, And for me to have meaning in my life, that would mean that I'm, um, that I'm, that I'm fair and try to be honest 
um, and that I'm accepting of others and that I try to do my best and contribute to society. And that that's really what gives me meaning in my life. Well, Barbara, I think that's a wonderful way to end our conversation. Uh, keep doing all you do, being all you be, keep leading, keep educating, encouraging and empowering others to improve their health and as I say to live with more vitality thanks a million thank you very much Mark thank you for listening to my podcast in the doctor's chair for further resources to support you to live with more vitality please visit my website drmarkrow.com